Hi, and welcome to the Silver Screen Queens podcast. Every week we watch a movie and sit down here to talk about it. I'm Katie. I'm Mel. And we're your hosts. This week we watched The Shape of Water, directed by Guillermo del Toro and released in 2017. The plot of the movie goes something like this. In a secret research facility in the 1960s, Eliza, a mute cleaner, forms a relationship with a mysterious aquatic creature. I didn't know it was spelt that way. I thought I'd it was spelt no- the traditional way. Yeah, she's called Eliza, and it's spelt in all the things as Elisa, so I'm, I'm a bit confused, but I think she's called Eliza. Yeah, it's definitely Eliza. I remember them saying it. Uh, yes, Eliza Esposito. Mm. Yes, yeah, so uh, briefly we will do uh, a spoiler-free section on this movie, uh, but this is really one where it's best to just sort of go in and enjoy the experience and really don't know too much about it before you start, but we'll do a quick spoiler-free section and then we'll talk spoilers on The Shape of Water. So should people see this, Katie? Yes, definitely. Um, this The moment that we finished this movie, it jumped into my top five films of the year. I absolutely loved this movie. It feels to me very much like other things that I like that are not by Guillermo del Toro. I know it does have some similarities with some of his other work, but to me it felt more like a more uplifting kind of one, like Pushing Daisies. Yeah. Which, you know, is sort of similar, I guess. Brian Fuller is also quirky and uh, and can often be dark but that was one of his lighter projects mm. but there's a there was like a very pushing daisies vibe for me from this from the music to the green wash over it to the kind of magical realism stuff um felt very pushing daisies to me mm. um plus the the fact that they sort of worked a heist in there and everything i felt like i could watch a tv show of this movie yeah so I've I've seen Pushing Day or some of Pushing Daisies, but I and, and I I get where that comes from. I just really found this like transporting. I know I said this about Call Me by Your Name last week, mm. but this even more so. This movie, it's weird. The plot is weird. It shouldn't make sense, and at times I found myself going, "Yeah, wow, I'm watching this movie is so so bizarre and and so weird." And if you just to describe the plot to someone, they would go, "What?" But it's so lovely. Mm. Like it's just this wonderful experience of a film, and it really. Um, and uh, when I got to those times where I found myself thinking, "Wow, what is, what is this?" I also found myself thinking, "Wow, this is exactly what you should use cinema for to do these wacky, out there flights of imagination that also, um, that really allow you to tell a very human story and really transport an audience into another world." great yeah me too um i had the same experience that i was very transported but i never i don't know to me it never felt weird but i think i just sort of i kind of knew what i was getting into like i knew that this was a guillermo del toro movie i knew that it's i knew the basic plot summary i sort of had an idea that we were getting into like a romance between a but i knew that as well fishman and so there wasn't a point where it ever felt weird to me some wit online, I'm pretty sure it's Gavia Baker Whitelaw, called it the fish f***ing movie. And I that obviously has stuck with me ever since. So I, saw, I knew what the movie was going to be about and I knew – and I'm not bothered by the fact that it was weird. It was more that I found myself stopping at times and thinking, gosh, isn't it amazing that this was made? Gosh, isn't it wonderful that someone has done this as I much as anything? I don't know. I was just um, – But I, I, don't, I don't know if it's jumped into my top five. A bit like Call Me By Your Name last week, it really sticks with you. Mm. Um, and in Call fact- Me By Your Name also jumped into my top yeah. five. My top five now looks different to what it looked like two yeah. weeks ago. So. When we get into spoilers, I will tell you one of the slightly disturbing ways in which it has 
stuck with me over the past couple of days since we saw it. But this was the we this was our New Year's Eve. We um, yeah. had a couple of drinks and went to watch this. And I personally recommend having a couple of drinks to watch this because it just I don't know. I think I was just the right amount of buzzed to be absolutely ripe for this movie. I think I would have enjoyed it without it, but I also kind of like it. <laughs> it was just a really chill way to end the year. It was. It was good. Um. Yeah, but yeah, we. Prob- I think we should probably we can probably, probably go into spoilers yeah, now. Um, we're going to spoilers, so please, please, if you haven't seen it, and we definitely recommend you do, turn the podcast off now and come back when you have. It was also my hundredth movie of the year, which I'm quite proud of. We saw it on New Year's Eve, and it was my hundredth movie. <laughs> yeah, um, and just my first. In. This is the thing. My first movie of the year was Moonlight, and my last movie of the year was Shape of Water. 2017 was a good year for movies. Yeah, that's a really. I mean, it really was a good year for movies. Yeah. Um, and we, we saw a lot of good stuff and a lot of interesting stuff. But, yeah, this movie, this was fantastic. And I found myself also at times, like even though I knew it was a Guillermo del Toro movie, particularly the script, I just found like, wow, the the dialogue was a lot better than you'd normally find in a Guillermo del Toro movie, a lot snappier. It, not just that. I, I I mean, he had to have had help because that unfuck this line yes. scene, I don't see him writing that. No, no. Um, I, I had really... too much kind of wordplay and stuff in it for Guillermo del Toro. I think not. I mean, mm. he's very good at English, but the kind of subtle wordplay stuff has never been his forte. Uh, if you look at this compared to Pacific Rim, for example, yeah. Well, that we talked about Pacific Rim having a lot of problems because, precisely because of that mm. sort of sloppiness around the script. But uh, Vanessa Taylor has a credit on this, and she seems to be a TV writer. She also wrote. Um, the first Divergent film, okay, um, which didn't strike me. But that's an adaptation that'll be different. Yeah, uh, but she's worked on a fair bit of TV like Game of Thrones and some of the sort of prestige TV stuff okay. that's around. So, like, but, I, yeah, I definitely got the feeling that there, there is definitely a hand in this that is uh, was not his. Um, he's, yeah, he's definitely a lot tighter than he his scripts usually are. Yeah, I mean, I, he is a very – he's an excellent visual director mm. and his films in Spanish are fantastic. Yeah. But I, I've noticed that in most of the films that he's done in English, I've had – and Crimson Peak as well mm. – had some script. Like, it, it's just the dialogue tends to be very straightforward. There's mm. not a lot of subtlety. This movie was not like that at all. There's heaps no. of subtlety. There's heaps more innuendo and implication and things like that in the dialogue, which is funny because the main character doesn't speak. Um, yeah. I, I, oh, well, she speaks in sign language, but but uh, really she doesn't speak out, out loud for the whole movie, Sally Hawkins. And sh- this, this was another reason why it was so amazing. Like, you have this – She um, doesn't do a lot of wordplay in sign language. No, she doesn't. She's more trying to get her point She's across. just generally communicating. Yeah. But – She's so wonderful and watchable and you. she was a really good choice for this role. I know there's an article doing the rounds about how Guillermo del Toro went to, um, went to hang out with Alfonso Cuaron at the Golden Globes, got really, really drunk and ran into Sally Hawkins and was like, oh, I love you. I'm going to write a movie for you about falling in love with a fish man. And she was like, uh-huh, sounds great. And then forgot about it. And then like three years later, that's what exactly what happened. Wow. Okay. I did not know that. It's in um, – I, that, I'll link to the article. It's in Variety or something. That makes it even stranger because I was just like hearing um, Eliza Esposito. I was like, oh, was she supposed to be like a Latina character well, that I, well, they yeah. then cast a white actress for? But if he wrote it for her, he's just decided to call her Eliza well, Esposito. Well, and they, they said she's called Esposito because she was they get, an which, orphan. She was given the name as an orphan. And like off the top of my head, I can't translate Esposito 
into English. Like it's a bit like in, in French, espoir, hope. Mm. Um, and I, I wonder if there's um, there's something in there. Oh, <laughs> okay. Uh, Google Translate translates Esposito as husband. So God only knows. <laughs> but is it really? Yeah. The only uh, the only other person that I know with the last name Esposito is Carmen Esposito. I was thinking Cameron Esposito, uh, Cameron, the um, yeah, comedian. Cameron. Yeah. Cameron Esposito, the comedian. And um, and she um, has a show called Take My Wife. So that just kind of makes perfect sense. <laughs> such um, an odd moment for me. Yeah. But anyway, they, she's, the idea, they do write that in as like she's been given the name by an orphanage, not necessarily that she is Spanish or, or Latina. Right. Which would make more sense. But, yeah, no, apparently it was written for her. He's um, – so the same year that Alfonso Cuaron won a Golden Globe for Gravity, Sally Hawkins won one for, I think, some TV work that she did. did she, I, I, and they I thought it might be that – wasn't she party. in that happy yeah. movie around that time? I would – yeah, I, I don't um, remember having a consciousness of Sally Hawkins before Paddington, so – I can't she, say, but yeah, it was she, around that time. She started to gain um, some buzz when she was in – oh, it's called Happy. Right. Um, which is a movie by one of those – I think one of those Irish directors, Happy Go Lucky right. is what it's called, in 2008. So that's longer ago than that. Yeah, it's further um, – um, I'm so bad with time. But it's directed by um, – it got awards Golden Globe Award for Best Actress. Yes, so there you go. Who's it directed by? The, the, like one of those – oh, Mike Lee. Oh, you know how they do like yeah, those yeah, the kitchen sink type, yes, yeah, slice of life. Yeah, but she, she's a really interesting actress, and she's been doing. She's obviously taking off at the moment. She, but I remember her getting um, awards for that yeah. movie, and that's when she started to sort of enter the public consciousness. I remember all of this, but whenever I see Sally Hawkins, I don't remember who she is. Mm. I'm like, oh, it's Frances O'Connor, nearly every time. Well, see, I I don't do that, but she also because she looks just like a regular person. I always forget who it is for a little bit. Um, I didn't in this movie because I knew she was in it, but mm. she's um, she's very every woman. And yeah. that's, I think, part of the way she's able to disappear into things. Like there was the one recently with Ethan Hawke where she's playing the Canadian artist. and she. But then she's also like she can turn it, that into oh, right. we the mum in – no, we didn't see it. But <laughs> I was trying to remember this movie I'm that we apparently I'm not even sure saw. if it has come out here yet. It is supposed to be up for Oscars and stuff. I don't know. But, yeah, she's really interesting. And you said to me afterwards when you came out, like, that you were really excited that someone who looks like Sally Hawkins is a leading lady now. Mm. And that, and I think, like, not that she's bad looking or anything and she's small no. and skinny and gorgeous, but she is, she does look like a regular person. And yes. that, I think, is part of the reason she's so compelling in this. I mean, yeah, that, like, there is room to talk about body diversity in Hollywood, but a large part of the problem with Hollywood is also the pressure on women to conform to a certain mm. like standard of beauty in their faces as well. Like right. getting plastic surgery to have the right nose and the right teeth and the right eyes and mm. stuff. Mm. So And she's and in she's, her forties and she looks like she's in her forties and, and that's fine. That's yes. what she's doing she's being herself in these roles. Right. And that's I think that's why it's exciting. Mm. I mean, you know, Definitely talk about body diversity has its place, but I think it can still be exciting to see somebody who's not mm. like, who doesn't look like, and sh who isn't in her 20s and everything. Mm. Yeah. And yeah, isn't yeah. trying to still look like she's in her 20s. Like when we saw whatever it was, and that when we saw the disaster artist and I didn't recognize Sharon Stone at all. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like that's because she's had a lot of plastic surgery, mm. which I understand. And I'm not like, no, no, it's not like you can understand why she would do that. But, yes, but to me, I yeah. was just like, I don't know who that is anymore. Hmm. And that's kind of sad. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that is true, and it is. I think it's great that that she's that we are. But it, it, you know, we're even seeing 
this level of like diversity in terms of not having perfect teeth or mm. you know having wrinkles or whatever or, and, and she does appear naked in this movie there are multiple bathtub masturbation scenes before we get to the sex scenes with Doug Jones's fish creature well very early like first five minutes mm, yeah um there it's like this is a person like the, she is a fully sexual adult woman which is quite nice and also well i've just just having edited the call me by your name episode but that'll be a week ago for listeners and um, we talk about the, in that movie about how this uh, female masturbation scenes are really rare mm, and i know and i we saw this one and i was like oh, another one a yeah. good one yeah this is stoker <laughs> yeah but both in the in the bathroom both in like in the bathroom in the shower yeah i mean it's oh, a- oh no i'm not i'm not it's, it's just a good place I just for it. Noticed. You can clean up easily afterwards. Um, <laughs> but anyway. Well, yeah, but also that's that's part of the water theme for her. Yes, in this, this Like movie. she has a connection with the water and all that mm. sort of stuff the, before the, she meets yes, Fishman who doesn't have a name. Gill thingies. No, I just kept thinking him, thinking of him as Doug Jones, which I know. Doug Jones. I did which too. Is, was it, because it's Doug he, Jones, the creature man. But he also, like, he looks like Doug Jones. Yeah. The Fishman looks like Doug Jones. He looks like... Abe Sapien and Doug Jones's character on on um, Discovery and everything. Mm. He just looks like Doug Jones. Yeah, um, yeah. Like I think with the fawn and stuff in Pan's Labyrinth, mm. there's a lot more makeup, so it's a lot. It's a bit less kind of oh, that's Doug Jones. Uh, yeah, but I, I thought the makeup was perfect, even still. Oh, like, me too. The, 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 it his eyes did this really cool thing where he seemed to have like multiple eyelids that. Yeah. At certain times, like he'd open, he could open his eyes, and then he could open his eyes really wide. I am looking forward to seeing this movie on a screen where I can see everything that's happening. The cinema that we went to makes me crazy sometimes. We were so <laughs> far back, and the screen was so small, and it was down. It was really quiet. The volume was down mm-hmm. really low, and so I had trouble with some of the lines when people weren't facing camera and stuff mm-hmm. like that. That like I would hear everybody laugh, and I was like, I did not catch what that line was. Although I did notice that there was the audience was very engaged. There was quite a bit of audience laughing, or mm. you know, going <gasps> or whatever. Yeah, and they'd laugh over things that I wouldn't hear. And then you, then. yeah, that you missed out on some of um, those, which is no fun. But yeah. nobody else seemed to laugh quite as much as Mike at Michael Shannon as I did. <laughs> oh God, I don't know why, but I found him really funny in this movie, and mm. I think it's just because like I don't know. I he was so ridiculous, I, but I think I had already like suspended all of my, you know, mm. my expectations of reality, and so because it was unreal, I was just enjoying it as like a story rather than like a, yeah, you, you know, well, he was really yeah. threatening or really whereas if you hold on to any expectations of reality, he's horrifying. Yeah, he's a great villain. He is really, but it, it it is also quite horrifying. Yes, I know, but I I just sort of was going with it as I think. The opening of it kind of established it as this fairy tale thing. Mm. And there's also that, like, even though I know it's set in the 1960s, it feels like it's not set any time or any real place. Yeah. Like, there's there's scenes where things are too close together and, and like, it's there's an artifice to the movie, which also <laughs> really reminded me a lot of Pushing Daisies, <laughs> which, yeah. like, Pushing Daisies is in that kind of alternate set no time sort of 1950s style yeah Yeah. but with multiple kind of influences in it and stuff like that Mm. and this had all these influences in it because it goes um richard jenkins her neighbor is obsessed with old hollywood so there's all that kind of influence on it as well so Mm. it it kind of has a lot of mixed in yeah and the things and 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 then they go to a pie then they go to a pie restaurant and they do like oh Okay, wow. Which is, ties into the 1950s, 1960s Cold War era movies, mm. which is what where Michael Shannon's character and the general and all that come from. He was so good. 
I think I was also partly laughing for the same reason that I sometimes laugh when I'm watching like Donald Gleason mm. in Star Wars or something like that because mm. he seemed to be having the best time and he yeah. did such a good job. I had no idea he was in this movie and he was brilliant. Yeah, I'd forgotten he was in it too and he the, he was just perfect for that part. Speaking of people I had no idea were in this movie, um, David Hewlett shows up. Yes. <laughs> Made me laugh like a bunch of times. I um, also think Michael Stuhlbarg looks a little bit like David Hewlett. Yeah. That was a bit I, – he still also kind of looks a little bit like Robin Williams to me, and I don't know why. Well, and but see, I just didn't even, even though I'd watched Call Me by Your Name last week, and I knew Michael Stuhlbarg was in this movie, I couldn't even like reconcile that they were the same person. And I know he that has, they were. The only way that I could do it is that his nose is like yeah. moves a funny way when he talks. And that's where I was like, oh, it's Michael Stuhlbarg. That's the, that's it because he was, he looks so different. He yeah, called me by your so name. so different. But like when he talks, his nose kind of wiggles around a bit and like stretches. Like me. Not quite like you, but kind of. <laughs> yeah, okay. He has like a little, it's almost like there's a little ball on the end of his nose. Yeah, and right. It stretches and moves I, around when I, he talks. Yeah, like I just didn't even, even rec- like, I mean, I knew it was him, but I also at the same time was like, this is a completely different actor. Yeah, Paul Michael Stuhlbarg in this. Mm. He was the sacrificial lamb. A he was. Bit. He was really sweet as well because he, I mean, he got to be a bit like Sally Hawkins to be kind of like the sweet and pure. Um, Which is one. a kind of an ironic thing given that he's the Russian spy. Yeah. Um, but it is like well, the, the, there's a humanizing element to this movie where everybody's humanized, including, including Michael Shannon. We see a mm-hmm. lot of his home life. Like there's nobody in this movie who is just a uh, caricature. Everybody mm. is. Everybody is humanized, and yeah, I I think there's several it, it like so essay shows. There'd be some great like you know um, academic film style essays on this if you want to start digging into the the Russian side of it or the race side of it or mm. any of that sort of stuff. It just would be fascinating. It would. I mean, it does. There's like that storyline is a bit sort of the Americans and mm. like there's just all these things that are going on that it just you could watch a whole season of this I think mm. like if you if you had if Guillermo del Toro had some sort of anthology series where each season was different like American Horror Story and there was one season that was the Fishman season yeah like that feels is what it kind of feels right. like it's, it, it isn't actually that long it's shorter than The Greatest Showman which I also saw this week which mm. we'll talk about later but it felt longer to me but not in a bad way no, I felt like I'd, I'd sort of gone into this different world for a few hours. Yeah. And and I was totally fine with that. And I felt the passage of time through it, mm. but like only – like there was a lot happening and, and it I was, was kind of – I was never bored. Like I didn't really look at my watch other than – which and we talked about this in the show, in Call Me By Your Name as well. There's a lot of water in this and I was quite busting for a pee by about a third of the way in. But Me too. Other than that, like I wasn't bored at all. There's always something going on and that's the thing. I held it. I held it right mm-hmm. to the end because there was nowhere. There was no suitable place to have a break. I did not want to leave. I didn't want to break the spell of being in there. Mm. Yeah, I was the same. I didn't want to leave either. Mm. I didn't want to leave Call Me, my, Call Me By Your Name either, but I did, mm. um, yeah. which I'm still annoyed with myself but about. It, but it, yes. it really kind of re- – so I talked at the beginning about how the movie's still like playing out in my head. So there's a bit, and the when you hear my eventual score for this, I think this will be – it'll probably explain why I maybe haven't rapturously loved it the way you did. There's a – something happens to a cat. Horrible happens to a cat. And – like the owner of the cat, who's her neighbor, is like, well, you know, it's not, it's not his fault. He's uh, he was just, you know, behaving as his species would behave, and he also had three other cats. 
But I last night learns- had a nightmare about trying to protect my cat from a monster. <laughs> and I also like I noticed I was anxious when I was outside with the cat yesterday. I'm not normally ang- he normally just like you know runs around the backyard and whatever and and I watch him and he's fine. And yesterday I was worried about things trying to attack my cat. So like this movie has buried itself somewhere deep in my lizard brain. <laughs> there you go. Um, he learns not to. Mm. He learns that he almost and then immediately he's nice to the cats but afterwards. I and- think I've had a reaction like our um when we we talk on the radio. Our, our friend Henry has things about dogs, and he's yeah. very and you can't he can't deal with any Don't kind of cruelty, dog. To, any kind of cruelty to a dog. And I think I just might have a cat thing. <laughs> okay, I think in any uh, like if, if it was any animal, I'd probably feel the same way, which mm. is that it's. I mean, it is sad. I was, but <laughs> I was taken out of that pretty quickly because I was like, wait, what? Didn't he kill his cat? <laughs> What, did he kill a different cat? Yeah. And he, then I discovered that Richard Jenkins had more than one cat, which I think you would probably know if the screen had been bigger. Yeah. We, but to me, I was like, oh, there's just one cat. He yeah, has a cat. And we were sat too far back as well. Um, we just couldn't. But there was, I could tell that he, I knew he had more than, than one cat, but yeah. Did you? Yeah. I had no idea. I figured, when but I that thought happened. there was only two, but it seemed like there were at least three cats. Uh, yeah. I thought that he had one cat and it was mm. called Thor. So is it, I don't know what the, the cat was actually the, called. The one it's that was killed was hear. called Pandora. But I can't remember what the other two were oh, called. Oh, that's, that's what another, that was in reference is, to. That's what that line was in reference to. I didn't realise. That, um, I thought the I, other thing. The, I thought that he was neighbor. talking about how they'd opened Pandora's box. So, like, if Michael Shannon comes from an epi- and, um, and Michael Stuhlberg come from an episode of The Americans, the neighbour is, like, from an episode of Mad Men, like, trying to hang on to – he draws advertisements and the world is moving mm-hmm. on to photography. Like, it just totally – And he's inter- gay. Yeah, and he's gay. There's totally interesting little, like, side plots of all these – everyone has these fully formed little stories, but they all kind of relate also to – into – a bigger world or a bigger thing that's going on in the world, which yeah, I found well, really fascinating. Has, everybody has motivation that we get to see and understand, mm. which is really interesting. A lot of the time you don't do they don't do that in movies. Mm. But like all of our core characters have motivations for doing the things that they do. And it's astonishing that, that our two leads, our romantic leads, don't actually utter a word. That's not true. Sally Hawkins sings a whole she song. She has a whole song. Well, and not her, but. <laughs> well, yeah, no, she does. She, she makes a couple of noises and her character has a song. But, like, two, you know, basically they don't have, they don't speak in words. We're yeah. taught, we learn all this stuff about them. She speaks in sign language, but we kind of understand all this stuff just watching them and they tell the story, like, without all of that. It's so impressive. Well, Doug Jones does it almost entirely just with, like, body language. Mm. Like,. <laughs> Nothing else, because he they, he barely signs anything. I think the only thing he signs is egg and you me together. Yeah, he also has like his the fishman has the same things that Lieutenant Saru has on Discovery, where he's got little hackles that literally raise on the back yeah. of his head when he's worried about something. Yeah, and the the glowy thing I knew as soon as he lit up, I was like, oh, he can heal. Yeah, because yeah. I've seen Tangled, um, <laughs> but like that, oh, and you know. Well, also, they well, initially to- it reminded me of Battlestar Galactica, but then I was like, no, no, because <laughs> I thought he would light up whenever he was like aroused. But I was like, no, no, the first time he lights up was with Richard Jenkins. I was like, I don't think that implying that Doug Jones is yeah. attracted well, they, to they Richard also Jenkins needed character. to like they needed to kind of tie that into everyone's story and that he heals Richard Jenkins' character. We know he's going to heal Sally Hawkins, but we quite deliberately know he's never going to heal Michael Shannon and his ter- his hands. Mm. Like it's it kind of a nice way to tie everything together. I loved the hand stuff. Oh my I gosh. know it's so gross. It was so disgusting, and the whole audience was like, "Ew, ew!" And it was amazing. It was very, very Del Toro. That was when it was the 
biting the head off the cat and that kind of bit was very Del Toro-esque. And the, the cheek. That was the most oh, Del the Toro cheek bit, bit was, me. yeah, like straight out of Pan's Labyrinth, yeah. yeah. Oh, that's the worst. This was much less, much less bad than that. No, but, but you also heard the whole audience go, oh, oh, yeah, at the same time. So they quite kind of like everyone knew what was going on. The bit in Pan's Labyrinth when the commander dude gets cut up the mouth is the probably the most horrifying thing in any movie that I've ever seen. Mm. And then he, when he stitches it back up, it's the it is I think the worst thing I've ever seen in any horror movie. Mm. It's so hard to watch and so nasty. Um, this comparatively was nothing. Also, it kind of reminded me of like a magic trick, you know, like when you pretend to kids that you've taken your thumb off and things like that. I don't know why, <laughs> but it just made me think of that. But yeah, the, the, that scene where he introduces himself to the cleaners, he pees with his hands on his hips and <laughs> puts his like electric baton stick <laughs> thing on the Yes, the cattle sink. prod. And I was like, the, the, um, the cattle prod is cattle my prod penis. Is his penis, that yeah. bit. It was funny. I don't know. There's so many details in this, like his attachment to that. And he is such a fully fleshed out character too, which I really appreciated. Like he isn't, we see a lot of things from his point of view and we Mm. understand why he does all the things that he does. And it doesn't make him any less bad, but it also means that we are clear on why everything is happening. Mm. I felt it could have actually wrapped up a little better in that I felt like it could have had a wind down period after the <laughs> after they jump into the water together. Yeah, cuz it's so quick. Right. Like the the big finale happens and then the movie is like really quickly finished. And we don't we yeah, it would be nice kind of cuz you see um the neighbor and and Octavia Spencer kind of together at the end. It would be kind of nice to wrap up their stories. I guess yeah. you, could, you, you could do that like you could have like, I don't know, he goes and gets pie and actually meets a nice boy and she goes home and finds that her husband's actually done something for himself, something like that. I don't know if we – I don't know. I don't know that that – I would rather that she just leave the husband mm. <laughs> um, and he doesn't meet anybody because it's sort of the point of his story. Mm. But, um, like, he could have been telling that story to, like, I don't know, people at a library or something yeah. and he's, like, found a sort of – and like drawn illustrations for audience and, and yeah. found some you know way to connect with the world yeah, or something well, he's like drawn that it into a than... comic book and that's and he's now published and he's on the book tour and that's why he's doing the voiceover at the start of right the finish. something like yeah. or wrote a book about it or whatever yeah. just something that um well i feel like it would be a, um, a graphic novel or, an, or a book a picture book because yeah you know he's it, it is also the 60s though and that's a lot less common i think but um, I, I also got a really good sense of, like, place and location and stuff in mm. this movie that I like. Yeah, well, it's sort of hard to place it precisely, although the movie, in fact, does give you the detail that it is 1962, like, because they show a car with 1962 written on it. You know, I didn't see that. But it, it, it's kind of – it is both really sim- easy to place in the 1950s and early 60s because it's so American Cold War, that aesthetic and the green, you know, cover of everything. But it is also, like – it it does a really good job of um of, of just making it that very clear and like you said universalizing it. Mm. Yeah, but it's also it's a it feels like an alternate nineteen like it doesn't the the way that the sets mm. are designed and the way that all these things there is an unreality to everything. Mm. Like it's not meant to be realistic. No, you know? no, no, not at all. I just kept getting distracted by the fact she didn't have a bed though. I'm she sure lots of people didn't have a bed. Like, I'm sure there are lots of people who didn't have a bed. She doesn't seem to have a bedroom. But mm. it just, I kept, like, every time she wakes up, I'm like, oh, why doesn't she have a bed? Actually, in the opening scene when she's floating above it, I couldn't tell what she was because we were so far away and because she's floating above a couch. Mm. So I didn't get that it was a person mm. sleeping. And presumably it was 
as much as anything like an aesthetic choice. I mean, it was probably, uh, I mean, it's probably also got to do with her connection to the water. Is that all she really needs is one room and a bathroom, mm. and she's happy, and that's all she really needs in life. Um, but yeah, it it was presumably just to make that clearer or more aesthetically like workable. But yeah, I understand. Um, I really liked that scene when she tells Richard Jenkins to say everything that she's signing out loud. Yeah, yeah. Um, when she says that, like, nobody hears her and, mm-hmm. you know, he's the same, like, he has no voice and she has no voice and that's why she connects with him. I really mm-hmm. liked that. Mm-hmm. And that's obviously why he connects with her too. Mm-hmm. But also because she knows how to communicate without yeah. speech. But I think also, like, he sees some of himself in her and vice versa. Yeah, yeah. And it also kind of really uh, succinctly articulates what it must feel like to be her. People constantly speak for her because mm. she's always speaking in sign language and there's only a few people who, who understand that. And so for her to so uh, overtly and stubbornly say, no, you're not listening to me, repeat what I say, yeah, um, yeah it gives her a lot of agency and makes that very um, real. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I liked that <laughs> bit where she's saying f*** you to Michael Shannon. Mm-hmm. It's really good too. He's so great. He was just so great in this. Like, just I mean, everybody was, but he was just such a good choice for that role. He mm. he brings so much to it, you know. Which probably I just enjoyed it so much, and that's why I think why I ended up laughing is just because I was enjoying him so mm. much. But yeah, it never really felt threatening. I don't know. Maybe it's the fairy tale aspect of it. Oh, I see. I see. I found him quite threatening. Probably because uh, partly because of it being the fairy tale aspect, he was very scary. But that said. I always had great faith that our heroes would defeat him. Yeah, I think that's it. I think that's why. I think the worst part. Like he's he him. is a he is a fairy tale villain. Like he's so clearly terrible. Yes. Like they set him up so quickly as being like sexist and racist and gross yeah, and all horrifying. that sort of stuff. Yeah. And the the sort of subtle racism plays and things like mm. that through the movie and and homophobia and all that stuff and mm. how that plays through and it's really interesting and like. The fact that these um, marginalized people connect with each other, but then Richard Jenkins is initially, um, what's the word, prejudiced against Fishman, mm. even though he's experienced prejudice himself, and then he kind of realizes by the end of that scene that that's not what he should do and things like that. There's all these like little messages woven through. Mm. Yeah. It's really great. I really love this movie. The soundtrack, was, the score was fantastic too. I loved the score. I immediately was like, I want to put the score on my mm. writing playlist. It's got playlist. some old 50s and 60s standards as well, like the, mm. that are, including the one that, that Sally Hawkins or her voice double performs, which is really nice. And then It was also, written for the movie, so it's not yeah. a standard, but yeah, it's written in that style. Oh, okay. I thought it was a standard because some of the older people who were sitting near us seemed to know it. As a song? I'm almost positive it was written for the movie. It I, I mean, I, I take your word for it. I just um, yeah, the the older the, <laughs> the, I, the I, older I, folks who sat next to us seem to know the song. I I, um, I swear that not. the person who wrote the score wrote that song. It reminded me a bit of the La La Land score too. Yes, um, yeah, it did. But there's, I mean, that is also you know, um, evoking show tunes and stuff. So that makes right. sense exactly. So it's kind of um. Yeah, well, I mean, whether or not they are actual standards or written for the show, they evoke that era very effectively and certainly stick in your head. At least some of them are standards because there's like a Serge Gainsbourg song in there. Yes, uh, yeah, I did think that some of them were standards, but I also, I'm sure that that one was written for this movie because I was looking. Yeah, okay. 
Um, for it. it's written by Alexandra Desplat Whispered. The You'll Never Know, which is the one I'm thinking of. It's yes. written by Harry Warren and Mac Gordon, and I don't know who they are. Okay. And Maybe I'm wrong then. No, you're right. It is a popular song. Right. Okay, good. Oh, yeah. No, the Mac Gordon died in 1959, so it's yeah. an old song. I don't know what I was thinking then. Yeah. And it's performed by. Maybe it was just the arrangement. It's actually an then... old, even an old version performed by Alice Faye, who died in 1998. So, yeah. Maybe it was just because um, the arrangement had his name on mm. it or something, and I got confused. And when they, but when she drops, when she goes into that performance, it's um, she goes into like a silent era, you know, long ball gowns and dancing in black and white. It's, it's um, no, but it's like 1930s. Old um, it's yeah, but it's the Music. um old studio system. Yeah, musicals. Type yes, old set. old set, old musical set, which was really nice. Like well. on Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. When they well, that's the- exactly what I thought of, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. <laughs> when, and then um, um, Settled in the Rain. Me. The movie that I was thinking of was, is um, now I'm not going to be able to remember, the, the one where um, Ginger Rogers was wearing like a weighted dress and she kept whacking Fred Astaire in the head with it and she gave him a concussion. I did not know that, but I'm going to put that in the show notes. <laughs> I'm going to find out what it that was. that sounds like a great story. Talk about it's not just backwards in heels; it's backwards in heels in completely stupid costumes. Yeah, but anyway, like that was it was um like the, those scenes were sort of beautifully woven in, and they do show that Del Toro's got this really wonderful sense of like film history in the way that they can just kind of weave that in, and the audience completely understands and it works. But also, the movie itself tells an interesting an, an original story, and yeah, also is clearly of its time. Well, our I mean, time, you know, the, all these movies that um people tend to love and connect with a lot do tend to have like um, be about movies in some way because that's we're accurate that's the language that we're using to watch the shape of water that yeah these are the movies that gave us the language to access the movie that we're currently watching yeah which is why why i go right back to my first comment about how isn't one of this is exactly what you should be using movies for is to tell stories like this to use these beautiful allegories and and work to your own strengths like making creatures and finding quirky English actresses to head up your projects, you, you, using that stuff to tell something that's universal. Yeah. I don't know that Sally Hawkins is all that quirky. I mean, she's been in some quirky movies, but she doesn't seem inherently quirky to me. I don't know why. She seems very like more like playing the down-to-earth person in quirky movies rather than being quirky herself. Well, this is, this is accurate, yes. Um, maybe it's just the types of movies she likes to choose. I don't know. I mean, like she with, certainly does choose like interesting movies, and you know, Paddington is like aggressively whimsical. In fact, mm. Paddington and this probably have some things in common. Mm-hmm. Um, I just saw Paddington two a couple of weeks ago, and the end of it made me tear up. It was such a good movie; <laughs> it was really good, mm. and it looked amazing. It was shot so beautiful. I know this is not a Paddington podcast. I haven't but seen it. You but seen you're it. not the only person who's like raving about it. It reminded me of. Um, the Grand Budapest Hotel oh, in how okay. it was shot a lot of the time. It mm. looked really, really good. Actually, now that you've talked about that. that you, but, but there's a prison escape in both and that's that's like it. Right. the way it was shot with the prison escape reminded this, me this of. Is, this movie also is another film we've seen this year along with like Murder on the Orient Express and The Man Who Invented Christmas and you think Paddington 2. Very, very filmic, like mm. not nowhere was it ever filmed like on plain air or on location? It was. It's all very much in a studio, in a world, very contained, and it looks like a film. Like the in this one, you know, it's the green wash and yeah. the the fifties aesthetic. I think um, there are some location shots because there's that dock stuff that wouldn't be able to be a set, right? But then, of course, that is very much you know a film noir 
yeah thing, especially the rain and, and the dark. Yeah, that the- mixing of like noir and, and old romance and all that sort of stuff worked really well. It was mm. very seamless to create something that was new and different. Mm. But yeah, I, I I also like this um, you know, back to the studio kind of um, aesthetic. It's interesting, um, and and it's sort of an older style of filmmaking that's coming out again, and people are trying, finding different ways of telling their stories. And that's what I was saying. Like it, I know, it, like, but in the in the beginning of the movie, I didn't know whether it was set when it was set. I thought it was maybe no. intentionally timeless or something you, like that. Because you're there's, deliberately not told for yes. most of the movie. I mean, there's, there's not until they start talking about like the space race and the Russians that you can kind of mm. start to get a sense of when it's set. Right. The and costumes are not like period specific really either. No. They're just kind of universal, like suits and cleaning uniforms. Well, and I think there's a, probably, again, another essay or something interesting for people who are more into costumes, but the idea of those that era of films being like the default, like 1950s is the default and we've yeah. like diverged from that era. I'm sure there's interesting, like, you can dig into that a little bit and, and perhaps also like someone like Guillermo del Toro who is not American, looking in on America and – reflecting that culture back i also thought a bit about cuba you know like the old cars and the old buildings mm. and i mean it's probably changing now that, that cuba's opened up but very much like the 1950s sort of cars and the 1950s sort of aesthetic but it's reflecting back on the fact that this is a country that's locked out of america well this is also this is in the time when things are transitioning away from that 50s mm. dream like Mad Men. um and the suburbia, but that's the thing is the suburbia and the normalcy in this movie are portrayed as quite negative. That's mm. Michael Shannon's world. And also um, Octavia Spencer's husband. Um, who we barely see. But no, yes. but, but we also hear, hear a, lot a lot about him and how terrible he is um, and how much Brewster. how hard she works. Um, My feet already hurt. Yeah, she works like an overnight shift every night, but she's still expected to be home to cook his breakfast. She's got to cook his dinner before she leaves. Like, he's horrible. Yes, he is. He's terrible. He's just the worst. I was quite looking forward to something happening to him and nothing did. <laughs> um, and that's such an Octavia Spencer role too. Well, <laughs> I was actually thinking about that. It, it, that's the one role that probably doesn't particularly do anything quirky or interesting or original with her. Like, it does rely on those sort of mammy tropes and her those maternal tropes in – the roles she tends to take like her hidden figures role or her the help role in fact she michael shannon literally calls her the help, the help at one point both of them yeah well yeah says it towards both of them i yeah. think that that they're really trying to make the point that they're not just the help though like they they right. also get to be she doesn't have kids and they're sexualized as well the the relationships yep. are sexual they talk about sexual things with each other mm-hmm. i mean this movie passes the Bechdel wallace test like 10 times you know and also doesn't pass in really interesting ways um when they talk about how she fucked the fish for instance um because <laughs> he's 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 you know he looks like a ken doll how did that work i know and and but the best thing is that octavia spencer actually asks her immediately yes. like does he have anything down there um, uh, I, I found that I found the dress. Oh, okay. And and my immediate thought, of course, was that in order for her to get pleasure out of it, he doesn't actually need to. No. Anyway, but it, it, it probably wouldn't have looked the way it did. No. It seems that. But anyway, uh, it's from "Follow the Fleet." The song is "Let's Face the Music and Dance." Right. Okay. Um. So it's the "Let's Face the Music and Dance" scene. Okay. Which Where I, Ginger Rogers should help you gives. Fred Astaire a concussion. Yes. Okay. You can you can see it in the dance. Um, it's yeah. it's basically all one take, and she whacked him in the head, <laughs> and uh, 
I will. He said that it didn't hit. It didn't hit him. But the story that she tells is that he actually was slightly concussed for the rest of the dance. Oh dear. <laughs> um, I'll see if I can find a, a video of that. It is. I, yeah, it is a problem that Octavia Spencer seems to always get the same roles. Yeah, except in like, what's that? Um. Snowpiercer is the only yeah. one coming although, to mind where she Although doesn't. now that you've pointed all this that detail out, does she does at least this is at least something different. And I think it's trying to turn that mm. kind of role. Yeah. Like trying to do something different with that role. Yeah, yeah. Um it's just that Octavia Spence is playing it again. Yeah. Especially and there's another part where he's talking about I swear there's a part where that directly references the shit in the pie scene from the help. As well, or mm. indirectly references. I like, never there's a quote. watched or read The Help, but I'll, oh, I'll take your word for it. The most famous thing that Octavia Spencer does in that movie is she gets fired. Uh, she does she get fired or something? Yeah, she gets fired, and then she goes back with like a chocolate pie for Ew, um, okay. Bryce Dallas Howard, right. and she's baked shit into it. Right, that's, right. Okay. That's literally the most famous thing about The Help, right. I think. And the hidden figures role as well for Octavia Spencer was quite different because it's much more about. Her interests and her, her dreams yeah. and, and the fact that she's, you know. I think ever since I've read some stuff about Octavia Spencer as a person, she, I found it really funny that she's – and she finds it really funny. She always yeah. gets these, like, mumsy roles. And, and she's, she's not like that. Not like that at yeah, all. I know. And people who know her are always like, you have kids? That's so weird. Um, so, I mean, this touches on that a little bit in that she is like a, an older married – they're an older married couple and they don't have any children. But, yeah, I just think it's funny and interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I think that it's it's more kind of I think part of her role also in this like they're all lonely people. Yeah, oh, they're, and they're the, all outcasts. I, you can see why those four work together, and it works really well. Right, and and but it is that um, the theme of loneliness runs through the whole movie, where um, Richard Jenkins is lonely, he never you know found someone, and it's so hard for him to find someone, and and Octavia Spencer is lonely in her marriage, and so her best friend is the woman who can't talk who she works with every night and yeah then of course sally hawkins is is lonely and she just like wants to find love and she doesn't well, but know. also she can't like she can't get people to listen to her she can't because she connect because she's mute and people and, won't right. won't pay attention and to what she's, she's also got this, this weird water connection that she i don't think quite fully understands at the beginning well, we don't either <laughs> yeah i i still don't know exactly how it worked well, she had the gill marks from the very beginning. My assumption was that, like, she actually had been, like, a part fish person, that she was rejected by the fish people and left by the water. And then she was found and raised as a human. And because she spent so long in the human world, the gills closed up and they just looked like scars on her neck. And then when she found this guy, they immediately had a connection because she recognised this was part of her heritage and then so when sense. they did get back to, did get together and jump off into the ocean together he was able to open up the gills for her and that's and her other gill breathing side took over because obviously there's a big plot point that he has two yeah. respiratory systems one that runs on gills and one that's lungs yeah although um, he can't stay out of the water for too long he needs to get back into the water and breathe through his gills for makes a makes a lot more sense than what i was thinking which was some sort of vampire situation and they she got scratched as a child by him or somebody like him, and then, you know, yeah, okay. um, then that was, like, infected her. Right. Um, makes more sense that she was one from the beginning. That makes a lot more sense, especially with the princess stuff at the beginning. I don't know why I connect, didn't connect that. Maybe it's just because my head was already in, like, supernatural world. So I was <laughs> like, oh, they're like fish vampires. <laughs> it's definitely what it is. Um, yeah, so 
we probably uh, should wrap up on this one. Um, sure. Because we're going for a while and we do have another one to record. But, um, yeah, so what are you going to rate it? I'm like? going to give it five stars. The problems that I had with it were very minor. Like, it's nothing to take away from the movie. I just would have liked a little bit of a breather after at the end and things like that. So, yeah. Yeah, okay. So, uh, yeah, I'm not doing that. I'm giving it four, which is reflects that I, I did love it and also got freaked out by the cat thing for a bit. <laughs> uh, but it, it, this is a really lovely movie if a little quirky yeah i don't know i think i just like maybe i just like quirky things more i don't know because i it like i said it's very much in the vein of those sorts of things that i like that Mm. like the best example that i can think of still is pushing daisies but Mm -hmm. you know those kinds of um which i find a bit aggressively whimsical hard to take yeah see i love it i love it and i think part of why i love it is because that you don't have to you don't have to worry about realism Mm. or the real world or anything like that like none of it has to have any of that kind of baggage with it yeah i don't know that's like a that's a really nice note to end on so i'm going to thank you very much for listening to the silver screen queens podcast if you would like to find old episodes or the show notes they're on our website silverscreenqueens.com and if you want to find us on social media we're at screen underscore queens on twitter facebook.com forward slash silverscreenqueens and tumblr.silverscreenqueens.com on tumblr Thank you for listening. Bye. Bye.